Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. I am an alien, a stranger in a strange land. My skin blisters in the sun. The air rejects my lungs. Everything about me screams, and I'm not from here. And yet, here I am, a stranger in a strange land. Such is life. I'm rich in material things, but so poor in culture. I yearn for connection. I yearn to connect to the land, but I'm born of the ghost people. I'm born of the ghost people. I'm born of the ghost people. My culture is sitcoms and Amazon and the Brady Bunch. And the birthday song. My culture is Coke is it. And Lord hear our prayers. And Millie Vanilli. And the twisted thoughts of stunted billionaires. I can name more stars in the Marvel Universe than I know in the sky. There are more Pokemon I can tell apart than plants I can identify. I yearn to say, here, try this, while proffering you a cup. My pops used to make this for me. It'll fix you right up. I yearn to say, this is how we do things here, or this is what the weather means, or... This bark is good for toothache, or just lie with me and listen to the land. Just lie with me and listen to the land. Just lie with me. My culture is full of lies. My culture is made of lies. My culture is lies cooked up by addict sex and suits made by slaves. My culture was strategized. My culture was bastardized. My culture was militarized. In the parlor rooms of monarchs, pipes and lies, my culture was spun out of lies by lobby groups and think tanks and lawyers protecting their clients and middlemen chaining up the things that shine and scavenger men looking for scavenger means to predate on vulnerable people. My culture is a vulture. My culture is a vulture. I end to say, this is how we do things here. Or this is what the weather means. Or this bark is good for a toothache. Or just lie with me and listen to the land. Just lie with me and listen to the land. Just lie with me, just lie with me. They lied to me, but you can just lie with me and be free and will. Listen to the land. And that was Alien, a stranger in a strange land soliloquy performed by multi-talented Australian poet, songwriter, journalist, political analyst, and self-described digital street philosopher Caitlin Johnstone, with music by Going Rogue. And you can see more of Johnstone's work, daily writings about the end of illusions, at CaitlinJohnstone.com. And coming up next in the Arts Express Playhouse, a solo performance of early 20th century writer O. Henry's 1904 short story, The Furnished Room. The Furnished Room by O. Henry Homeless, they have a hundred homes. They flit from furnished room to furnished room. Transients forever, transients in abode, transients in heart and mind. 
They sing home sweet home in ragtime. They carry their household goods in a bandbox. A rubber plant is their fig tree. The houses of this district, having had a thousand dwellers, should have a thousand tales to tell, mostly dull ones, no doubt, but it would be strange if there could not be found a ghost or two in the wake of all these vagrant guests. One evening after dark, a young man prowled among these crumbling red mansions, ringing their bells. At the twelfth, he rested his lean hand baggage upon the step and wiped the dust from his hatband and forehead. The bells sounded faint and far away in some remote hollow depths. To the door of this, the twelfth house, whose bell he had rung, came a housekeeper. He asked if there was a room to let. Come in, said the housekeeper. Her voice came from her throat. Her throat seemed lined with fur. I have the third floor back, vacant since a week back. Should you wish to look at it? The young man followed her up the stairs. At each turn of the stairs were vacant niches in the wall. Perhaps plants had once been set within them. If so, they had died in that foul and tainted air. Now this is the room, said the housekeeper from her furry throat. It's a nice room. It ain't often vacant. I had some most elegant people in it last summer. No trouble at all and paid in advance to the minute. Now the water's at the end of the hall. Sprouse and Mooney kept it three months. They done a vaudeville sketch, Miss Bretta Sprouse. You may have heard of her. Oh, that was just the stage names. Right there over the dresser is where the marriage certificate hung, framed. The goss is here, and you can see there's plenty of closet room. It's a room everybody likes. It never stays idle long. Do you have many theatrical people rooming here, asked the young man. They comes and goes. A good proportion of my lodges is connected with the theatres. Yes, sir, this is the theatrical district. Acting people never stays long anywhere. I get my share. Yes, they comes and they goes. He engaged the room, paying for a week in advance. He was tired, he said, and would take possession at once. As the housekeeper moved away, he put, for the thousandth time, the question that he carried at the end of his tongue. A young girl, Miss Vashner, Miss Eloise Vashner, do you remember such a one among your lodgers? She would be singing on the stage, most likely. A fair girl of medium height and slender, with reddish gold hair and a dark mole near her left eyebrow. Mm, no, I don't remember that name. Them stage people has names they change as often as their rooms. They comes and they goes. No, I don't call that one to mind. No. Always no. Five months of ceaseless interrogation and the inevitable negative. So much time spent by day in questioning managers, agents, schools, and choruses. He who had loved her best had tried to find her. He was sure that since her disappearance from home, this great water-girt city held her somewhere. But it was like a monstrous quicksand, shifting its particles constantly, with no foundation, its upper granules of today buried tomorrow in ooze and slime. The guest reclined inert upon a chair, while the room, confused in speech as though it were an apartment in Babel, tried to discourse to him of its diverse tenantry. The mantle's chastely severe outline was ingloriously veiled behind some pert drapery. Upon it was some desolate flotsam cast aside by the room's maroon tenants, 
a trifling vase or two, pictures of actresses, a medicine bottle, some stray cards out of a deck. He breathed the breath of the house, a dank savor rather than a smell. A cold, musty effluvium is from underground vaults, mingled with the reeking exhalations of linoleum and mildewed and rotten woodwork. Then, suddenly, as he rested there, the room was filled with the strong, sweet odor of a flower. Mignonette. It came as upon a single buffet of wind with such sureness and fragrance and emphasis that it almost seemed a living visitant. And the man cried aloud, What, dear? As if he had been called and sprang up and faced about. The rich odor clung to him and wrapped him around. He reached his arms for it, all his senses for the time, confused and commingled. How could one be peremptorily called by an odor? Surely it must have been a sound. But was it not the sound that had touched, that had caressed him? She has been in this room, he cried and he sprang to wrest from it a token, for he knew he would recognize the smallest thing that had belonged to her or that she had touched. This enveloping scent of mignonette, the odor that she had loved and made her own. Whence came it? And then he traversed the room like a hound on the scent, skimming the walls, considering the corners of the bulging matting on his hands and knees, rummaging mantle and tables, the curtains and hangings, the drunken cabinet in the corner for a visible sign. Unable to perceive that she was there, beside, around, against, within, above him, clinging to him, wooing him, calling him so poignantly through the finer senses that even his grosser ones became cognizant of the call. Once again he answered loudly, Yes, dear, and turned wild-eyed to gaze on vacancy, for he could not yet discern form and color and love and outstretched arms in the odor of mignonette. Oh, God, whence that odor? And since when have odors had a voice to call? Thus he groped. He burrowed in crevices and corners and found corks and cigarettes. These he passed in passive contempt. He sifted the room from end to end. He found dreary and ignoble small records of many a peripatetic tenant, but of her whom he sought and whom they have lodged there and whose spirit seemed to hover there. He found no trace. Then he thought of the housekeeper. He ran from the haunted room downstairs into a door that showed a crack of light. She came out to his knock. He smothered his excitement as best he could. Will you tell me, madam, he besought her, who occupied the room I have before I came? Oh, yes, sir, I can tell you again. Twas Sprouse and Mooney, as I said, Miss Bretta Sprouse. It was in the theatres, but Mrs. Mooney, she was. My house is well known for respectability. The marriage certificate hung, framed on a nail over the... What kind of a lady was Miss Sprouse? In looks, I mean. Oh, why? Black-haired, sir... Short and stout with a comical face. They left a week ago Tuesday, and before they occupied it. 
why there was a single gentleman connected with the train business. He left owing me a week, and before him was Mrs. Crowder and her two children. They stayed four months, and back of them was old Mr. Doyle, whose sons paid for him. He kept the room six months. That goes back a year, sir, and further I do not remember. He thanked her and crept back to his room. The room was dead. The essence that had vivified it was gone. The perfume of the mignonette had departed. In its place was the old stale odor of moldy house furniture, of atmosphere and storage. The ebbing of his hope drained his faith. He sat staring at the yellow singing gaslight. Soon he walked to the bed and began to tear the sheets into strips. With the blade of his knife, he drove them tightly into every crevice around windows and doors. When all was snug and taut, he turned out the light, turned the gas full on again, and laid himself gratefully upon the bed. It was Mrs. McCool's night to go with a can for beer, so she fetched it and sat with Mrs. Purdy in one of those subterranean retreats where housekeepers foregather. I rented out my third floor back this evening, said Mrs. Purdy, across a fine circle of foam. A young man took it. He went up to bed two hours ago. Now, did you, Mrs. Purdy, ma'am, said Mrs. McCool, with intense admiration. You do be a wonder for renting rooms of that kind. And did you tell him then, she concluded in a husky whisper, laden with mystery. Room, said Mrs. Purdy in her thorious tones, are furnished for to rent. I did not tell him, Mrs. McCool. "'Tis right you are, ma'am. "'Tis by renting rooms we keep alive. "'You have the real sense for business, ma'am. "'There may be many people will reject their renting of a room "'if they be told a suicide has been after dying in the bed of it. "'As you say, we has our living to be making,' remarked Mrs. Purdy. "'Yes, ma'am, tis true. "'Tis just one week ago this time "'I helped you lay out the third floor back. "'A pretty slip of a calling she was "'to be killing herself with the gas. "'A sweet little face she had, Mrs. Purdy, ma'am. "'She'd have been called handsome, as you say,' "'said Mrs. Purdy, assenting but critical.' But for that mole she had, a growing by her left eyebrow. Do fill up your glass again, Mrs. McCool. You've been listening to The Furnished Room by O. Henry. The music is Secrets of the Fairies by Derek and Brandon Fichter. The Furnished Room was adapted for radio and performed by myself, Jack Shalom, for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And next on Arts Express, during this football season, there's a movie just out that is about just that, or perhaps not. National Champions is much more a movie about collective action that takes on the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, for the economic exploitation of college athletes, making millions off the players, many sustaining injuries and compensating them nothing. National Champions is a dramatic feature about staging a boycott against those corporations and refusing to play. Alexander Ludwig, who has also starred in The Hunger Games and Vikings, 
is our guest to talk about his role in national champions as one of the college football players rising up against the system. First, some scenes from national champions, then Alexander Ludwig. We're still 24 hours away from the national title game. Wolves quarterback, LaMarcus James, should be the best quarterback to come into the NFL since Patrick Mahomes. And you know who agrees with me on that? Miami. They're poised to take him number one overall for about $35 million guaranteed. But we are not talking enough about Wolves coach James Lazor. One of the best coaches we've seen, but he has never won the big game. We're live. I am joined by LaMarcus James, who won this year's Heisman Trophy. A revolutionary banging on my adversary. This is the home of my best friend and teammate, Emmett Sunday. Tomorrow he'll play in a game that'll gross over a half a billion dollars. But Emmett won't see a dime. And just like the other 12,000 draft eligible players that don't make the NFL every year, his football days will be over. Zero compensation, zero medical insurance for all the injuries he sustained. My coach, James Lazor, receives an annual salary of $5 million. The commissioners of the top five power conferences receive an average salary of $4 million each year. The president of the NCAA received a salary of $3.9 million last year. So I'm personally asking all players in Monday's national title game to join me in this boycott to demand that the NCAA will recognize players as paid employees and not student athletes. Jesus. Coach, I think it's best if the NCAA took the reins here. LaMarcus is a good person. We squander a $600 million payday for tomorrow alone. Anybody around us got private jets and private chefs. You got insurance? What you gonna fix your broken body with, huh? He makes a compelling argument, and I know I stand behind him. The reality is he's got so much to lose. Do not let LaMarcus rob you of your legacy. My football team will play for me. You two cannot unionize college sports, and that's a fact. Four players just tweeted, we're in, with the hashtag fix the system. It ain't just two of us no more, and that's a fact. Who really won this? Like, who really won that man that say he won? We gotta stick together on this, fellas. If he sits, they gonna Kaepernick him like you. LaMarcus leaked my Nike contract. These boycotts have gained a lot of momentum. What happens to all of the other sports that are not men's football and basketball? when they start paying you. Everybody doing it, everybody doing it. Marcus is standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the behemoth and we haven't even begun to fight. Glory is at hand. God is with us. He says there is nothing to lose. Glory is yours. I am here and there is nothing to fear. Glory is ours. It starts right now, it starts right here. Take it. Hi, and welcome. Thank you for having me. Is this film personal for you in any way? Have you ever played sports? I did. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, so I, I didn't play a lot of football, but I, I played a lot of sports, and I know a lot of friends. Uh, basically, I ended up going to college in, uh, at USC, so I know a lot of friends that were collegiate athletes, uh, and a lot of them were collegiate football athletes, so I would say it's personal in that I played uh, college sports, but... It's definitely personal in that I know a lot of people who have, uh, some who made it to the NFL and to the NHL and other things, and some who didn't. So um, uh, it, I'm very grateful to be a small part of uh, being able to tell the story. And what about the same issues fighting for rights in, say, the film world, especially for young actors? I mean, I think, I think uh, in any uh, world where there is a discrepancy between... Uh, if, if you are, if you, if somebody is making money off of, off of somebody else's uh, uh, performing in, in, in whatever it is, I think that there's a conversation that always needs to be had. Now you're in no less than three productions about sports right now. In addition to national champions, there is heels about the wrestling world, and heart of champions about the college rowing team. Would you say all that is by design or coincidence? Honestly, it's by coincidence. I, I think a lot of the roles that I've ended up doing have required a lot of uh, 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 a big physical transformation on my part. And um, 
I guess I'm just always, I've always been drawn to to roles that um, require a lot from me, and uh, and they're all certainly stories that I want to tell because they're about worlds that I perhaps don't know a lot about. And what are your own thoughts about the exploitation of college athletes as in this film and the managers and corporations making a fortune off them? Yeah, I mean, personally, I think it's wrong. I, 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 I can't get so much into the financial part of it, but I think that absolutely anybody who puts their body on the line for anything where people can make money uh, deserves to be taken care of after that. Um, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, the conversation is is starting to be had, and I and I and I my hope for this film is that it can be it can be a catalyst uh, to spark even uh, bigger conversation. And how would you compare and contrast your very physical roles in Hunger Games and as a Viking, and in National Champions as a college football player? One thing I love about National Champions is that a lot of the actual football of it all is behind the scenes. This, this, this film always reminded me of like a margin call or a big short in that so much of the drama is, is behind the scenes of what happens, yet you still remain on the edge of your seat because it's such a fascinating story and the, the characters are so well thought out, uh, not to mention the cast is tremendous, you know. Um, so so um, this was unlike a lot of the other things I've done in that respect, and that's kind of what drew me a lot to it as well. Um, I mean, not to mention getting to work with, you know, the J.K. Simmons of the world and mm. Timothy Oliphant and Christian Chenoweth and my buddy Stefan James is phenomenal in it. Yeah. Um, just such an incredible cast. Yeah. And what are your thoughts about the issues raised in the film, especially for youth audiences, unionizing school sports, the hashtag fix the system, and including Upton Sinclair's The Jungle? I mean, I think that, um, I think that this is a, this is a bigger conversation, um, and you know, at the end of the day, one that I personally um, am not the right person to have because it doesn't impact me in the way it would have impacted somebody who was a college athlete. But that being said, um, as I said before, I I couldn't agree more with the fact that anybody who puts their life or their health on the line uh, for the profit of uh, of, of anyone else. Uh, deserves to be taken care of, and and to what respect? Uh, I think that that's again part of the lar- larger conversation that uh, those involved uh, hopefully will have sooner than later. What was it about your character Emmett Sunday that inspired you to play him in the film? What I loved about Emmett is that he, he's the guy who isn't going to make it to the NFL. You know, he's the one who has to live with all these injuries for the rest of his life with no with with no help um, and. He also happens to be the most loyal and incredible friend you could ask for. So um, Emmett, is, to me, was like, he's got nothing uh, to gain from this, uh, really. You know, this is, um, this is about paving the way for those uh, behind him. And, and, I, and I've seen that again and again in any, you know, big uh, momentous change that's happened in this world uh, that – so many, there are so many lost leaders that were ahead of them who, who uh, started the conversation uh, and, 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 took, and took, the, took the bullet, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, on behalf of, them, of the people coming up behind them. So that's what I loved about uh, Emmett is that he, it, it's a really admirable thing he does, and, and he just has his friends back the entire way. And any thoughts about the discussion in National Champions? Of Upton Sinclair's *The Jungle*, his novel about exploited meat packers. I honestly, I, it's funny when they mentioned that I hadn't even read the book. I had talked to the writer about um, about it. He was uh, Adam Nervis, who's just such a phenomenal writer, and he was educating me on that book. So it's something I've yet to read, and I still should read. Uh, but I mean, it seemed to fit. Obviously, that was something that um, Stefan's character brought up uh, a lot in uh, in the in the film, but. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to comment as much, as much on that if I hadn't read the book. And what are your thoughts with this film about the economic exploitation of youth coming out at a time when your generation, the millennials, are reported to be less financially well-off than any generation preceding them? Wow. I didn't even know that. But yeah. that's, I mean, that seems about right. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> and to me, 
I know a lot of friends that are doing really, really well, uh, work so hard to get to where they're at, and yet still can't, uh, you know, uh, afford to start a family or, you know, do things like that. So that's a sad statistic to hear. Um, uh, and, I mean, I, I don't really know um, the direction forward. That's the saddest part about it is, is you know, what, what needs to change to get to some sort of normalcy. Um, you know, when I think about the times when uh, my parents, you know, grew up and, and, and now and, and what the, the effect of such an ep- economic discrepancy is, uh, it, it scares me because it's so uh, vastly different. Um, and I think everybody's having that problem. Is just, yeah. They just don't yeah. know what to do about it. Like, well, how do you, how do these, how does this, how does this change begin? Where do you even start uh, when you're, when you're this far off the mark? Okay. Thanks so much, Alexander Ludwig, for calling in. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Bye. And National Champions is in release this week. Express. Each day, the criminal courts condemn scores of unfortunate girls to prisons that need reforming more than the prisoners. For in these dismal cages, the first-time loser is exposed to the habitual criminal by a vicious, outmoded penal system. I am interested in seeing that we give every inmate a chance for readjustment, to become a worthwhile human being. I wish we could drag the public in here to see the inmates decaying. But even sympathetic officers are helpless against the system. For here, the underworld conducts its training school, where new recruits are taught every vice imaginable. Here, corrupt matrons exact tribute from inmates who can pay and wreak brutality on those who can't. Here, women without men live only for the moment of freedom while the bars of their cage seem to close in on them in a mad, swirling pattern of terror. We operate on a big scale, and boys will protect you just like your own mother. If they protect you, why are you in here? I knocked a guy off. I've lived a lifetime and a year in this cage, and if I have to fall back in, I'll be like the others. I've I've paid my debt. Let me out. Please, you'll never regret it. You know it's against the rules to have any pets. Hand it over. (laughs) 
and those were scenes from Caged, a 1950s women's prison noir starring Agnes Moorhead and Eleanor Parker, and, quote, turning the women into legions of the lost, no matter innocent or guilty, branded women the law for God. And even before the privatized prisons and mass incarceration today, which brings us to our next guest, Nora Fingscheidt, a director of The Unforgivable, starring Sandra Bullock as a just-released incarcerated woman convicted of killing a cop during an eviction of her and her little sister from their Seattle home. And though the story takes the usual disappointing turn into family values rather than uprising, as has been the case in the mass protests against evictions and police brutality in Seattle and elsewhere, under the German filmmaker's direction, The Unforgivable is noted for its keen sense of Italian neorealism and the director's own roots in the social realism of the GDR where she was born, and how she captures the raw and stinging reality of Seattle's working-class life, streets, and factories so rare in Hollywood movies. Here are some scenes from The Unforgivable, then Nora Fingscheidt. Ruth, phone call. Hello? Hello? You're gonna pay for what you did. I was in prison. I just got out. I was there for 20 years. For what? Does your release alter the terms of your no-contact order? You don't have to give me a speech. I'm looking for Katie. She's my little sister. I raised her. Okay, next time, don't drag me through three bus transfers to tell me something you already know. John, there's a woman in the front yard. Can I help you with something? You're a lawyer. What would Catherine gain by meeting her now? I wonder all the time what she looks like, what she became. Your life starts here now, not 20 years ago. <clears throat> she did her time. She killed somebody in cold blood. If that were any of your black sons who had been in the system, they would be dead. She walks around like it never happened. Now you tell me if that's fair. You gotta be a convict wherever I go? No, you're a cop killer everywhere you go. Okay, Ruth, Ruth, just stop I'm saying good. you're not. I'm good! Don't treat me like I don't exist! Tell her about me! Hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. What was it about this story of a woman released from a U.S. prison that inspired you to come on board as the director? I thought it was very fascinating to um, to follow a woman who is released from prison because this is a perspective of society that we usually don't see in big Hollywood films. Now, your unusual grasp of working-class life in this film, which is so rare in U.S. movies, your landscapes of streets and workplaces, the fish factory, seems influenced as well by Italian neorealism and your own roots in the GDR and socialist realism. What are your thoughts about that? So it was very important for us to um, tell the story also visually um, in a way that feels as realistic as possible um, and the not very glamorous, you know, because life for a lot of people isn't, you know, and the fish factory is a gritty, smelly, 
um, wet place. So we wanted to make that, you know, clear um, for, for the audience. It was interesting to work against the beauty of Seattle. That the one time you see a Seattle skyline, it is almost um, working in contrast of the scene. Other than that, we, we try to make everyday life, yeah, as, um, as harsh as it is for real people getting out of prison. Now, a traumatic family eviction appears as a small but very precipitating factor as part of this story. And eviction protests in this country have escalated even further during this pandemic. Why was that an important element for you within this film, especially with the massive rent protests in Berlin and a push there to nationalize apartments and lower rents there? Well, um, that's a very, very good question. For us, um, it was a given for me at least, because it was already in the story um, when I came on board as the trigger point of it all. So it was never something that we really questioned. But of course, you think about the consequences of eviction, especially in the United States, where in the area where I live, lots of homeless people mm-hmm. on the street, yeah. much, much more than I'm used to um, seeing from Europe, where there probably are more shelters or, or a system that tries to support the people, it doesn't always work. But here I felt if you if you get evicted, it's very easy to be completely left alone and all by yourself. And it's very, very hard. And what's going on in Berlin right now with the mass protests? Well, like in most big cities, it's a permanent process of gentrification. That means, as you know, that it's more expenses for people to live there and the, the people who originally lived there are being um, relocated into other um, places. So that's an ongoing conversation that, that they try to keep the Berlin rent as low as possible. But yeah, there are a lot of companies um, interested in buying them. So in the end, it's about money. I haven't been in Berlin for the last two and a half years. So I don't know the current situation and the atmosphere of it all. Uh, I think it relaxed a little bit during the COVID. You know, there was a stop on things. But yeah, I'm not completely up to date about it. And how would you say you have an outsider looking in perspective on U.S. society? As someone from another country, that serves as an advantage for you as a director. Yes, indeed. It's brings a different perspective on things. It's true, you know, the system of incarceration and, and being released and the different opportunities that there are for me, it's very easy then to compare it. So um, that, that may be good. So you see things sharper. On the other hand, I also always needed support um, from my American colleagues in order to make sure are we showing the homes in an appropriate way? Like, is that how people would behave, how people look like. So it goes both ways. It is an advantage and a disadvantage at the same time. And what can you say about the tremendous empathy and focus you place on Sandra Bullock's character, Ruth, and her victimization, whether guilty or innocent, as an ex-felon pariah, and especially in relation to the mass incarceration in this country, the largest imprisoned population in the world? Yeah. I mean, what I can say after doing research in prison, um, but also speaking with women just released or a few were released a few years ago, is that it is extremely hard for them to re-enter society. And the longer you spend, the longer you're inside, um, the more alienated you feel when when being released. In addition, you know, women are um, generally more left alone when they're inside. They don't have a support system that continues to, you know, family that continues to visit them. It is often that they are they they come out and they get forty bucks state money and they don't have anyone. So that is why there is an extremely high percentage of people that were incarcerated that go right back in. It's 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 a scary number. It's like seven seventy seventy five percent. And um, yeah, we wanted to show um, to show that struggle. And although Ruth 
does have, you know, um, has, you know, was incarcerated for something really brutal. And we always wanted to have that contradiction that we do root for her because what her need is being her sister is something deeply human and should be respected, or at least that's the question to the audience. And did you speak to incarcerated women like Ruth preparing for this film? I mean, it was a great experience to get those really personal views on, on the modern world. And what, what struck me is that many of the formerly incarcerated women say that once they are out, they feel like they have prisoner tattooed on their forehead. And that when they cross the street, everybody can see it. But it's, um, it's more the feeling of you, you carry your past around you, and it makes it very, very difficult to arrive in the modern world when you feel that you don't belong there at all and that nobody wants you, and it's almost impossible to get a real job. And what can you say about what is going on with the pandemic over there in Germany right now and in the rest of Europe as well? And why they seem to have such massive protests there related to the pandemic, as opposed to here. Um, yeah, I haven't been home for a very long time, so it's hard to say how it really is. My my knowledge about the situation is through family members and friends that are telling me how it is, and then, of course, through the news. Um, and the news is very concerning. There's a lot of, you know, um, fightings and protests going on when I speak to my friends and family, for them, it's more relaxed. The vaccination rate in Europe, in Germany, um, but in general in Europe, is much higher than in the States. Mm-hmm. Here, you don't have protests, but you have more people not being vaccinated. Over there, you have a higher number of vaccinations, but still protests, which is also has to do with the fact that over there, everything can spread much easier because it's less space. You have much more people living in a small place altogether. You know, you have big houses with high front people living in there all using the same elevator. So when you have an outbreak, it spreads much faster than, for example, it can in California, where it's warmer, it's not as cold. Um, so on the one hand, that is why people are very concerned. But then on the other hand, of course, with the history that we have, um, with, um, you know, the, the Nazi regime in Germany, people are extreme sensitive when it comes to what they feel as government control. So whereas here, I feel it's easier that the government just makes a decision, like let's say everybody who works for the government gets vaccinated, boom. Everybody in the military gets vaccinated, boom. Kids at some point will have to be vaccinated to get in school. Over there, it's not as easy to make those decisions because, yeah, you you are having a lot of protests against that. And I wanted to ask you about your involvement in the creation of Film Arch, the film school in Berlin, described as, quote, a completely self-organized school. Please explain how this school is new and different and why it was important for you to become part of it. Yeah, that is. So the Film Arch uh, in Berlin is, as you say, a, a completely self-organized film school. That means the students decide themselves who are they approaching as teachers? What do they want to learn? They find their own curriculum. You know, they do short films together. And I was part um, and board member of that school for several years. And I still love it. And I'm deeply grateful for that experience because it taught me how important it is to, you know, to do the things and not just waiting for some authorities to organize everything for you. And how important it is to work together. You know, we weren't in a situation of permanent competition because we had to work together or the project wouldn't be happening. Later, I went to a state-run film school that is much more an elite education, which also was great and taught me other crafts. But film art really, um, yeah, taught me how how important it is to, to stick together with your crew, with your team. And it was amazing to learn from people who are also way older than I was back at that time because, you know, we were in the class. There were some people who were 18 and others were 65. And so we learned from each other. And any last word on the unforgivable? Well, I can just say uh, it's, a, it's a role that 
we haven't set, we have not seen Central Volta playing such a part yet. And it is really amazing. It's a it's a great supporting cast. Um, and I hope that the audience, you know, after watching this film, takes a second look at people who usually are overlooked and, and invisible in our society. Um, that you think about second chances, but of course also about family and unconditional love and how important it is to support each other. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for calling into the show. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And The Unforgivable is out in release this week as well. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.